Welcome back to Kids Brain Detectives. I'm Dr. Jennifer Morrison, your host. I can't wait to share this week's episode. Welcome back to episode two of our Little Kids series. Last time we talked about some information about early childhood intervention kinds of things through the special education program. This time we're going to switch gears just a little bit and discuss the difference between developmental assessment and autism evaluation or the overlap between the two. And that's myself, Dr. Jennifer Morrison, and my developmental specialist, Lee Fisher, an LPA that works on my team and under my supervision. And then there will be some additional tips thrown into this one. So there are some behavioral tips offered by me. And then in future episodes, we're going to be including a segment that we are calling Mindful Minutes with Dr. Madi. And she's one of the psychologists on my team who has a specialty in kind of the mind-body connection. So therapeutic yoga instruction and general mindfulness strategies that we are going to throw in as well for a little extra TLC for our preschool age moms and dads. Hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to Kids Brain Detective Podcast. This is Dr. Jennifer Morrison, and today I am here with a member of my team, Lee Fisher, my excellent LPA on staff that specializes in assessment for our zero to five kiddos. Welcome, Lee. Hello. Good morning. Thank you for coming today. I would love to have a conversation about something that comes up often in discussion with parents. What I want to talk about is the difference between developmental evaluation and autism evaluation and maybe similarities too because I feel like it it overlaps quite a bit so can you give me more information oftentimes parents when they call in because we offer both services or both in tandem will say which one do I need absolutely so there are a lot of similarities for this age group we do a developmental assessment where we look to see the progress that the child's making in several domains we're looking at their fine and gross motor cognitive skills adaptive skills, kind of their self-care. And then we look at social and language um, in that age group and just to make sure they're hitting milestones along the way. If it's an autism eval, we'll look specifically at social aspects in conjunction with the other domains. So would you say it's fair to say that all developmental evaluations include at least a screening for or a thought about autism potentially being a developmental factor we need to consider? Absolutely, because social is such a big piece of that of that age group of it, assessing them, and that goes hand-in-hand hand with the autism diagnosis. Okay, so part of that process then is to maybe screen for autism with just some observation and interaction, and if there's some red flags that suggest that there's differences in those areas, then a deeper dive is warranted to see if all of the characteristics of an autism spectrum disorder are visible in deeper, more formal evaluation. Absolutely. We'll look to see if, you know, things within social skills as well as language, if those are autism driven or if they're more just a language delay, um, as well as just other social interactions. If they're, you know, just a personality or a developmental pace of a child versus being an actual autism concern. Okay. So second question, Mm -hmm. timing. So we take technically evaluation requests for kids from birth all the way up. 
Clearly, an evaluation for a, a newborn looks quite different than an evaluation for a three or four or five-year-old, which is kind of that upper range that you work within. When do you want to do an assessment with a child? Um, it varies. Um, I'm not going to really see autism much before two years. There are some cases, and those are pretty rare but pretty extreme and very noticeable. Um, in the two to three range, we can see a little bit more signs of autism. In that age, I can especially put interventions in place for the child that can help um, with better outcomes. Three to four in that same range, we can start seeing more of um, delays and start seeing some more social differences. A big reason that I test this age group is that we can get early interventions in. So I am a big proponent of not doing the wait and see approach. If there are concerns, let's take a look and if we can't diagnose autism or if that's not it or if we're not sure, we'll put a monitor for autism approach in and work with interventions to help development grow. So I think the best part about early evaluation is that oftentimes our expectation for the assessment is not diagnosis every time. Absolutely. It's a little more exploratory, figuring out what a child's strengths and weaknesses look like so that we can optimize development in areas, regardless of whether there's a diagnosis in place or not. 100%. This age group, there's so much pliability with the brain and so much that we can do as far as establishing good routines, good habits, both with the child and in the home. I always kind of tell parents, you get a bigger investment for your dollar and a bigger investment with your time by putting in early interventions with a child if they're needed. Well, to that point, there's been quite a bit of research that suggests that the earlier and more intensely is specifically for our kids' brain kids on the autism spectrum. The earlier and more intensely that we can put interventions into place, the younger they are, then you actually will see that there's less like lifetime financial expenditure and less intensity needed for future services, which is all a product of how much intervention they are receiving as early as possible. Absolutely. If you think about developmental growth as being an upward moving line on a graph, if a child has a delay, then that line will be a little lower and will be a little bit of a gap. As that child ages, that gap is going to grow. The idea with an intervention is that we're going to change the slope of that line, basically, and give it more of an upward movement so that any gap in development is either um, reduced or they catch up to developmental expectations. Sure. When you were talking about the age ranges for assessment and the age ranges in which it's uh, apparent that symptoms are present, every child on the autism spectrum is different and their symptom profiles are going to be quite diverse from child to child. I think to your point, it is often easier to see the full manifestation of an autism spectrum disorder as children reach that three, four, five age range. Sure. But we're still testing younger than that. Mm -hmm. Even though we may not see the full fruition of those difficulties, what do you think you would tell parents when they say, if there's a possibility we may not get a definitive diagnosis or a definitive clearance of autism spectrum disorder as a diagnosis at two, what would you tell to a parent to give an idea of whether you think there's actually any utility there? That I get questions all the time. My child is two, do I wait to three? My child is three, do I wait until they're four? So if what advice would you give to parents in that regard? My advice would be to look at the intervention piece. Again, diagnosis 
it's helpful, but diagnosis doesn't provide growth. It's the intervention piece. So if a diagnosis isn't reasonable at that time, if there are delays, we can put things in place to speed up the development, to help foster that development in a more rapid pace. And then we can continue to monitor for a more formal autism diagnosis if needed. I think that's an important point, especially because at Kids Brain, we don't use an isolated evaluation that only answers the question of is this autism or not in kind of a yes or no format as our starting point for assessment. Right. We are going to use a broader for the kids that the questions might be related to autism spectrum disorder. We're going to include all of the other developmental pieces too. And I think the reason that I like to share with parents is that if you distill the assessment process down to a yes or no question and end up with no, it's not autism, then you end up with more questions than answers because you still don't know what it is and you still don't know what the child needs. Right. So if you have an evaluation that's completed at two and don't end up with a definitive autism spectrum diagnosis, are still able to make recommendations for intervention at that point because no diagnosis of autism has been made. Absolutely. There are many interventions that don't just apply to autism. Like, for example, if language is a challenge, um, speech-language therapy can be recommended regardless of a diagnosis. Um, Occupational therapy, if there's a sensory processing component, occupational therapy can be recommended. We can also start building patterns and future testing. We can look to see the rate of developmental growth from time to time. And that helps us get a lot of data for a reliable diagnosis when that time, when or if that time comes. So that makes me think about something that might be an additional piece to talk about here too, which is essentially response to intervention. Sometimes the kids that we are seeing in evaluation, because you and I do assessment in tandem a lot, is a question that's developmental in nature. We end up with some areas that we're monitoring, Mm -hmm. end up with some areas that we are recommending intervention for. And then our hope would be that the return visit to at least take a look at parts of the concerns that were present at that initial evaluation might be possible 12 to 18 months from there. Why do we make that recommendation? Often parents are saying, oh, well, if I'm going to have to come back in in 12 to 18 months, maybe I just wait the 12 to 18 months. What's the utility of that second piece? It's to see the pace of the developmental growth with interventions put in place. Uh, We can look to see, well, if, if we're putting these interventions in place and they're not working, then we know we need to take a different approach. Um, if we put them in place and they are working, then we'll know to keep going. If there's still pieces that need to be addressed. We can add those in. That can tell us a lot about whether a diagnosis is appropriate, if there's changes in our intervention plan. Because children at this age grow so rapidly, we really want to monitor more frequently than with older age children so that we can make adjustments and make sure that they are getting as much as they can or as much as needed in that early age range. Wonderful. So just as a recap, the team here at Kids Brain really loves early intervention models because it gives us the opportunity to catch problems early, even if they're not clinically diagnosable issues and delays that could potentially be addressed as early as possible, which in my mind always means alleviated as early as possible. This also gives us an opportunity to connect with other people that are working with children on the autism spectrum, like offer your information to parents, but also to teachers and preschool teachers that are working with children in an educational format. 
Do you think that the information that comes out of this assessment process helps teachers working with these kids too? Absolutely. One very common question that comes up is, you know, planning for preschool or future schooling. And so we'll provide information on how that child, what they need in a classroom, how they might function, how they're currently functioning in a classroom. And we can provide information and tips on how to make the classroom more suitable for that child and and for the whole classroom as a whole. So part of that process too is figuring out a readiness for learning. Yes. And in this age range, the skill sets that they need to be a strong student. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And those aren't just facts. A lot of times we think about learning our numbers, our letters, our colors, and our shapes. But we'll also look at things as really among the social elements. um, Can a child sit for an age-appropriate amount of time? Can they verbalize their needs in a constructive way versus a tantrum? Can they sit in proximity to other children? Can they interact with other children? Do they know how to utilize toys appropriately? And all those things kind of play into a school setting very much so, and their potential and ability to learn. Those are really the kindergarten readiness skills that we're looking at for a child. Capturing those domains and supporting them as intensely as possible allows them to have the strongest foundation underneath them to get started in those areas when it is time. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for joining me today, Lee. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed this. Catch you guys in the next episode. Welcome to this week's Bond, Build, and Connect segment. Our BBC tip this week is something that I call lose the poker face. One of the keys to building an attachment with your child is to show through your nonverbal communication systems, which is the not words part of how we communicate, like your facial expressions, your body language, your gestures, that you are attuned to your child's current emotional experience. This means being adaptive, so taking your own emotional state and then shifting around your child, and then being consistent or congruent with where they are at the moment. This shows that you are aware of what your child is experiencing, and especially in our very young children who may not have super strong language skills just yet, your nonverbal communication to them is the actual part of what you are sharing that they register and understand. Simply put, lose the poker face and let your emotions shift with your child and share with them through your body language and your facial expressions of emotion that you have done so. This means matching their emotional state, especially for the positive ones, in a way that they can see and feel. So experiencing their joy with a smile, a physical touch, like a tickle or a squeeze and laughter to share with them. You are seeing their emotion of joy and you are reflecting it back at them to show that you understand. This is helpful to build a bond between you and your child, but also gives them an inherent understanding that you get where they are. So that feeling of congruence between your mood and their mood, the consistency between allows them to feel like they are aligned with you. And this is one of the core elements required for a good, strong attachment to a parent. This also means that there are certain circumstances when negative emotions are present where you will need to shift around them as well. Like if they're sad, slowing things down, getting on their level, making eye contact to show that they are seen. 
those sorts of negative emotions can be reflected back as well with an empathic response that's helpful in connecting with your children. The one kind of caveat to this is anger because you don't want to match anger with anger. Irritation, frustration, those sorts of emotions are best expressed through a combination of a neutral facial expression of emotion and an indication of your openness to be a part of that process. A lot of times the negative emotions that our kids experience, especially if you are not particularly comfortable as an adult with negative emotion, can cause you to shut down. And so as a parent, you may withdraw your eye contact. You may close your body off by crossing your arms or pulling some distance between you and your child because you want nobody likes to be around negative emotions because they do tend to overflow into our own emotional state. And so as a self-protective mechanism, parents will often shut down their nonverbal communication or match anger with anger. And what we want to do is to avoid the desire to move away or push through that strong emotion into a different place by shifting it to this side. Essentially, when anger is present, keep your face neutral, keep your body open, maintain good proximity, don't pull away, don't be threatening in your physical appearance, just stay where you are like a rock. I'm steady, I'm here with you. Your negative emotion is not going to blow me over. I am a tree with strong roots and I can flex like a willow and be here with you. You're not going to blow me down. And to show that their emotion doesn't have to be your negative emotion, that their anger does not dysregulate you and cause you to match anger in return. Essentially, in those negative situations where strong, aggressive emotions may be there, what our overall agenda as parents should be is to show that you are seeing their distress and that you will stay with them through that distressing moment. So this week, try to see if you can lose the poker face. Welcome to Mindful Minutes with Dr. Maddie. In each short segment, you will have the opportunity to learn and practice mindfulness. When we practice mindfulness, we are present and open. Mindfulness is about awareness and acceptance. It's about cultivating the intention of experiencing the present just as it is. We spend a lot of time in the past and in the future, remembering what happened and anticipating what will come next. And we're not doing anything wrong. That is just how our brains are wired anticipating and remembering dangers so that we can keep ourselves safe. But our environments have changed so quickly and our minds are capable of creating so many fantastic stories. So if this is what we are wired to do, is there any hope? Well, in fact, mindfulness is not about trying to change our thoughts. It's about trying to become aware of them, aware of what's happening around you and aware of the thoughts and emotions that are going through your mind and body. For example, When your child takes their first steps, it's not a good thing or a bad thing. It just is. They're moving their legs. But you experience joy in that moment because of the meaning you attach to those steps, because it makes you feel that they are healthy and doing well. Mindfulness allows you to notice all of that. Similarly, when your child is yelling, it's not a good or a bad thing. It is loud. It may have desirable or undesirable consequences, but it's not good or bad. It just is. 
our minds can interpret it as distress or disrespect. But when you're mindful, you can observe both the moment and your reaction, the meaning you're given to it. And when we are better to able to discern what's happening outside and inside ourselves, we're able to live better lives. Myla and John Kabat-Zinn said it best. When we bring mindfulness and discernment to our parenting, we may come to realize how much we tend to judge our own children as well as ourselves as parents. We have opinions about them and who they are and how they should be, perhaps comparing them to some ideal that we have created in our minds. When we judge our children in this way, we cut ourselves off from them and them from us. By intentionally suspending judgment and cultivating greater discernment, we create the potential to reconnect with them and with ourselves.